as we've been looking through the book of Colossians the past couple of weeks, uh, you know, we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago where the Bible actually said, wives, submit to your husbands. We said that is met with great resistance. In our culture, that is, that is contrary to anything that we would say in our culture. But when we look at the text that, that we just read this morning, like how much greater is an offense to us, it, this verse, that says, slaves, obey your master. Because when we start thinking about slavery, slavery is nothing short than evil and demonic. Like when we think about the, the slavery that we understand, this Western civilized, uh, or this Western culture of slavery, man, it's terrible. I mean, our country, we are 150 years removed from the Civil War that we went to fight to say one person cannot own another person. That's 150 years. We are 50 years removed from the Civil Rights Movement that we tried to say that literally what God said that all men are created equal is actually true. That all people, regardless of color, uh, are created equal in the eyes of God. We look at this and I start thinking through and I'm like, you know, racism is, 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 is a thing. Now, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the 80s. And for me, like, racism, it wasn't part of the way I grew up. It wasn't part of my culture. It wasn't part of my family. And so I, again, sheltered a little bit in the Northwest where you don't kind of see all the race issues. Uh, then I had the chance uh, in 2010 to go on this mission trip to a little town called Mountain Bayou, Mississippi. I'd say the way that this town got their name is they said, if you're driving on the train and you see a mound go by you, that's when you need to get off the train. Mound by you, Mississippi, okay? They, it's funny, they have the, per capita, they have the largest African-American population in the entire United States. In fact, when we got there, the, the uh, pastor that was hosting us said there was uh, three of us on a scout trip. He said, you guys just doubled the white population in this town. We're like, that means there's six of us now. Like, that is crazy to think about. But as we went on the scout trip, me and a couple other leaders, uh, the pastor is trying to give us a feel for the area, trying to help us understand the, the community in which we're going to serve. And so he's driving us around, and he's talking about racism. And he's talking about the racism that he still experiences today. I'm like, no, you're lying. Like, that happened, that, that was years ago. That, that's in the past. We're way beyond that. And he goes, no. So he drove us down to the biggest city near him called Cleveland, about 15 minutes from where uh, Mount Bayou is. And he drives us into the biggest town, Cleveland. And he says, hey, you see that bank right there? I'm like, yeah, it's a great bank. He said, yeah, I cannot get a loan there. I'm like, well, why not? And he says, because of the color of my skin. And I said, no, no, we have laws that prevent that from happening. We have laws that says it doesn't matter what color your skin is. And he goes, no, there's an unwritten rule. If I walk into that bank and I apply for a loan, they will not give me alone. And then we drove a little further down. And he said, hey, there's these two churches across the street from each other. There's the white church and the black church. And he said, in fact, it happened like this, where these kids, they go to school together, and, and one of the white boys made, made friend with an African-American boy. They're friends. And so he said, hey, my church, we're doing this event. I, I want you to come to church with me. And so the white boy brings this African-American boy to, to church with him, and after that, his family, who had been a part of the church for years, got ostracized from the church because they brought someone of color into the church. Man, isn't it crazy to think that we still deal with these issues to this day? It is crazy to realize how slavery still has an effect on our country. It's evil. 
It, it is, it's just terrible. In fact, uh, within the past week, I found this fascinating. There's a, a Christian rapper by the name of Lecrae. I know some of you are into the hip-hop scene and you're missing out, all right? I'm just saying that. Actually, I'll, also, I'll give this to you as a, as a little just golden nugget for you. There's an app uh, that you can get on your phone that will read the Bible to you with hip-hop beats in the background. It is great. It is great. I'll just say, it is great. Lecrae is a Christian rapper, and, and he posted this on Instagram this past week. Let's see if we got that. Can you show that slide? This is a receipt from 1860. This is a receipt from when his third great-grandma was bought by a slave owner when she was nine years old. And I don't know why, it just, it hit me like, wow. And thinking about how this still has an effect on our country today. Listen, without a doubt, the, history, the, the, the slavery that we know in our country, the slavery that we know in the Western world was evil and demonic. There, there's not words enough to describe how bad it was. And then we open up our Bible and we read a verse like this that says, Slaves, obey your masters. And we wonder why sometimes people look at the Bible and start having a hard time believing what it says, have a hard time learning and knowing about the God of the Bible because they open it up and they see things just like this. Because I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, like you can read through the entire Bible and nowhere... Nowhere will you find that the Bible just outright condemns slavery. You can look and look and look. Nowhere does it say slavery is evil and it should not be practiced. And if someone tells you, oh yeah, there is a verse, they're lying to you. Because you will spend day after day searching for it because it is not in the Bible. And so what happens is we take our Western lens. We take our Western culture, the way that we know slavery, and we project that onto the Bible. We look at verses like this. We look at uh, chapters of the Bible like Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus 22, Leviticus 25, Ephesians 6. And we say, listen, the Bible never condemns slavery. In fact, it almost seems like the Bible condones it. Begin to wonder, like, how could I follow a God? How could I follow, how could I give my life to a book that condemns something as evil, that doesn't condemn something as evil as slavery. And that becomes a hill that some people die on. That that becomes the one stumbling block to their faith. Where they draw this line on the sand. They draw this line on the sand and say, this kind of God over here, like I like these portions of that God. But then there's this line on the sand because he doesn't condone, or, or he doesn't condemn slavery. He almost condones it. And that becomes a stumbling block where I, I just can't, Come over here and understand this God because there's this thing of slavery and it's had a deep effect on our culture. It's had a deep effect on our country. It's had a deep effect on, on people's families in this room. And that becomes difficult and a stumbling block for me to actually come to try to get to know who the God of the Bible is and let alone why I should give my life to him and submit myself to it. They're out of here because they don't like this message. I want to do something a little different this morning. <laughs> I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to do a little thing called apologetics. And so if you are new with us, this is not what we normally do. Uh, but I think 
approaching this text is appropriate for us this morning. Apologetics. This is how we begin to defend the Bible. This is where we try and get some reasoning where we can understand the truth of the Bible. Because the reality is, there may be some skeptics in this room here today. Or maybe in your life, maybe you know some skeptics. And they have a hard time believing uh, the Bible. They have a hard time believing in God because they find things that they find to be inconsistent with who they think God should be. So we want to do a little apologetics this morning to help us understand what the Bible actually teaches about slavery. To help us understand that the Bible and God and the gospel are not pro-slavery. In fact, as we look through the Bible, we're going to see that the fullness of the gospel, it removes the world's oppression. We're going to see that Jesus said this. Jesus said, the Spirit of God is upon me, and I came to preach good news to the poor. I came to release the captives. I came to give sight to the blind. I came to free the oppressed. This is what Jesus came to do. So we're going to look at this and try and understand how do we grasp the fact that the Bible just said, slaves, obey your masters and everything. Verse 22, that's what it says. Slaves, obey your master. If you have a Bible that is the NIV, the Christian Standard Bible, the, 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 the New Living Translation, that is typically the way that that verse is tra- translated. It says, slaves, obey in everything. And I just want to say, that may not be the best translation. Because when, 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 when the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters, they're not referring to the 40,000 young women and girls who are, are, are stuck in the horrors of sex trafficking in our country. When the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters and everything, it's not talking about the drugged-up child soldiers in Africa. It's not talking about the horrors of the racial slavery that we understand in our culture. The word here that is translated slaves is actually a word called uh, doulos. And you find it 131 times in the New Testament. 131 times and over 85% of the time. That word is translated as servant or bondservant. If you read from a King James Bible or the English Standard Version, which is what we typically read, that is the way that that word is translated. Not slaves obey your masters, but bond servants obey your masters. And there's a very big difference between what being a bond servant was and being a slave that we would understand in our Western culture. So I want to try and understand, well, what does the Bible talk about these bond servants that are often referred to as slaves? A bondservant was, was common in the ancient world. It was something that happened uh, all of the time. And the Bible, again, this is where the Bible doesn't condemn it. But the Bible does begin to regulate it. In fact, like we've seen, as Paul has dealt with these ideas of the family, and he's talked about wives submitting to their husbands, we talked about how actually what Paul is doing is he is building up the, the status of women. Where women had no status, And Paul just said, listen, wives, here's your responsibility. But husbands, you are to love your wives and sacrifice and give yourself away for your wife. He just elevated the role of a woman. He does that with children. And what the Bible is doing right now is elevating the role of a slave or a bondservant. He is regulating it to increase its value. And I'll be honest, as as I'm going to go through and help us understand a little bit of this, if you want to say, well, where'd you study this from? Uh, there's a, a ministry called Answers in Genesis that I took a lot of this material from, as well as there's a, there's a pastor in Illinois uh, by the name of Rich Graham who did some work that I'm going to borrow some of this from. So uh, this is where it comes from. Here, here, here's how we understand a bondservant. 
There are times that a bond servant, a slave, uh, could have been punished and forced because they committed a crime and this was their uh, punishment. But oftentimes, a bond servant was a, uh, was a voluntary position. It was a willingly thing. In Leviticus 25, it talks about this. It says that if you had a debt that you could not pay, that you could sell yourself into that person's indebtedness until you could work off the debt that you owed. Also, you would also see this play out where if you were economically struggling, if you couldn't find work and you're stressed out saying, how do I provide for my family? How do I put a roof over the head? How do I put food on the table? That you could actually sell yourself as a bond servant or, again, a slave. And you would work for another person who would then financially provide for you. How many of you feel like that's what you do with your life right now? I have sold myself to you so you will pay me to, I can, so I can have a house and a car and all those other things. Uh, it was common, <coughs> excuse me, it was common for bond servants to be educated. <coughs> In fact, this was smart business. This was a smart business for you to educate your slaves because they're working for you. And oftentimes, that bond servant became uh, more educated or more intelligent than their boss who was over them. This isn't some oppression. These uh, bond servants, if they were gifted, if they were intelligent, if they, uh, whatever, they had opportunities to rise up into leadership and to be given roles of influence. In fact, you see this in the Bible story. In the Bible narrative, there's a guy by the name of Joseph. And what happens to Joseph? He had brothers. And what do brothers do? They pick on the little brothers. And so uh, Joseph's brothers, they sold him into slavery. And you know what happened to Joseph while he's a slave? He rose up through the ranks to become second in power next to Pharaoh in Egypt. He was a slave who rose up the ranks of being second in power. The book, uh, the book of Daniel tells the story of Daniel. Daniel was a slave to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And guess what happened to Daniel? He rose up the ranks till he was second in power to none other than, than King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so we have to understand that this idea, this, this isn't an oppression. If you were gifted, you had opportunities to, to rise and improve your situation. <coughs> another, another protection is if you sold yourself into slavery, let's say you had a $200,000 debt. And you said, I can't pay this debt, so I'm going to sell myself to you until I can work it off. Listen, if you were the, the, if you were the person that, that, that agreed to that, you couldn't charge interest on that loan. You couldn't say, well, yeah, you, you owe me $200,000, and I'm going to charge 20% interest every month until you pay it off. You couldn't do that. There was that protection, so you couldn't uh, just continue to attach more and more and more. That was your amount, Leviticus 25, again. Another cool thing is uh, uh, holidays were extended to all of the bond servants. And so when you look at all the religious festivals in the Bible uh, and all the, all the holidays, you even look at the idea of the Sabbath. All of those things, all of those days off, all of those celebrations were extended to the bond servers and the slaves. So you couldn't go and have a party. You couldn't go and say, I'm going to go celebrate the new moon and the new wine. I'm going to have a good time with all my friends. And I'm going to make all the bond servants, they have to continue to work and take care of things. That's not the way it worked. If you had the day off, if you had the celebration, so did the bond servants. You, you begin to see a little bit of a value that God is, is giving to this role. In fact, if you are a bondservant, the Bible regulates that you are given opportunities for freedom. That your slavery, it had an expiration date. That if you were an Israelite, 
That after seven years, that you would be freed from that indebtedness. And in fact, not only were you let go, no longer a bondservant, but the Bible says that the, 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 the boss was supposed to provide generous support to you so you wouldn't go right back into slavery. So you actually had this person, you had to give them money after they no longer worked for you so that they would be able to take care of themselves and not have to go back into the same situation. Again, you can read this in your Bible, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15. And this is a little bit different than the slavery that we know. Am I right? When we think about our Western racial slavery, this is very different than what the Bible is talking about here. In fact, as you follow the progression of the Bible, it comes unhinged. When you follow the progression of the Bible with slavery, it comes unhinged when we get to the book of Philemon. In the book of Philemon, it's a story that, that Paul, he shares the gospel with, with a slave. Uh, some people believe it's a runaway slave. We don't really know. He shares the, the, the gospel with a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. And what Paul does is Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. But this is what this is what Paul says, I'm sending him back not as a slave. I'm sending him back as a brother. That no longer did Onesimus and Philemon have this slave-master relationship. Now they had a brotherly relationship. They were brothers. And how do you treat a brother? You give him noogies. You give him wedgies. You make him do all the bad chores. And the Bible says if you have a brother, you love him. You serve him, you help him, you protect him. And in that moment, Paul is completely blowing up this idea of this slave-master relationship. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel completely changes it. That, that, that Paul destroyed that relationship when, when Paul says, I sent him back not as a slave, but as a brother. And that means, listen, both of them will stand before God. Both of them will worship God forever together because of what Christ has done. Where no longer is it one owns another, now you guys are brothers in Christ. And so throughout the Bible, when it comes to the issue of slavery, the entire Bible is a story of redemption. It's a story of restoration. And on this issue of slavery, this is what the Bible is, is showing us. It's this progression. It's this story of redemption, of restoration, which is what the Bible is all about. It's a story of, of redemption. And that redemption has continued to where the people who fought the, the hardest to end the slavery that we know of, the people who fought the hardest to end the Western idea of racial slavery, those were Christian people. People who submitted themselves to the word of God. People like William Wilberforce and John Newton and Martin Luther King who submitted themselves to the scriptures and said, listen, this is what I, God has called us to be about. This is probably a little bit of a rabbit trail. And it made me think about this because this past couple weeks ago, I don't know if you've heard this in the news, there's these couple of, uh, 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 I don't know how to say, maybe famous Christians I don't know if they're really famous, but they're, they're, they're outspoken Christians. And they've come out saying, I've renounced my faith. And the question, the reasoning why was, we're not talking about the hard things. You know, the church, we're all about happiness. We're all about feel good. We're not talking about the hard things. Listen, we're not skirting away from the hard things. This is a hard thing. The fact that the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters and everything. We're not skirting away from the hard things. We're trying to understand them, to say, God, help us comprehend the hard things. 
And this is true. This is what we want to be about Restoration Church. We're not going to shy away from the difficult conversations. You have difficulties? Let's wrestle with them. Let's not do it every week because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress on me. But let's not shy away from those hard things. And I want to just encourage you, maybe just extend a little bit of a caution for how we approach the Bible. Because we come to the Bible to learn about the God of the universe, to learn about the love and the redemption that he has for us. And it's dangerous for, to, for, it's dangerous for us to take bits and pieces of the Bible and say, well, I don't really like this piece. This part is hard. And so without any context, we take that verse completely out of context and say, this is why I can't place my faith in God. It's a big rabbit trail. But I think it's relevant for us. Maybe for your own faith, as you begin to wrestle with some of the hard things in Scripture, some of the hard things in faith, maybe for you, you've got some skeptics around you. And this is going to be something, hey, let's talk about what it actually means when the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters in everything, because it's different than the way that we would normally read it in our culture. Got to have the context. Well, now I still got to preach a message, so there we go. Uh, we're going to take a right turn here, and now we're going to look and say we have this, this text that says slaves, obey your masters and everything, and trying to understand what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you and I in 2019 in Yakima, Washington? What does this look like? Again, as, as we look at this text, I want to remember what we've been studying about, about what Paul has been trying to teach us. That Paul's been saying that maturity of faith, that, 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 that growth in the Christian life, that there is evidence that comes. If you are growing in your faith, there's evidence. And the evidence of your faith, the evidence of your maturity is not just going to church. It's not having religious experiences. It's not obeying a bunch of rules and looking really good on the outside. What Paul actually did is he said it's a picture of clothing. He gave us this picture of clothing and said if you are maturing in your faith, that there's these clothes, these old rags that you take off, these old ways of living, these old ways of thinking. And he says, you put off things like, like sexual morality and lust and anger and wrath and filthy language and lying. How much of that is a message for us right now? That we want to grow deeper in Christ. This is what Paul says. You want to grow deeper and be mature. You put off these things. And we could hit a response right now. What are those things that you need to put off? What are those things that you have justified? It's not that bad that I need to put off because I claim to follow Christ. And then he says, you need to put these old things off, and you need to put on these new clothes. You need to put on these, these new things, these new characteristics that should be characteristic of a Christian. And all of these things, it's about loving other people. That's what he says. It's, it's love. It's how you love other people. In fact, Paul gave us these examples of what they were. To love other people it is exhibited by your compassion on other people. By your kindness, by your humility, by your gentleness, by your patience, by your forbearance, by your forgiveness. That if you are growing in Christ, if you are a Christian, these are the things that are supposed to characterize your life. That these, these old patterns, these old ways of thinking, man, aren't they self-centered? I mean, isn't that why we lie? Isn't that why we pursue sexual morality? Because we're self-centered? Me and my rights, and I'm going to take what I can. Take what I want. People are there for you to take from to get what you need. And the new clothes, this, this new way of living, these new characteristics, these new ways uh, that we're supposed to live, 
It's all about giving. It's about giving ourselves away for someone else. It's about even giving up our rights for someone else. That this is how you love. This is how you show your love, by how you give yourself away. And so Paul, again, you look at the context of this. This is what Paul's talking about when you, when you look at the, the instructions that Paul gave to husbands and wives. Wives, you choose in humility to give yourself to your husband. And husbands, we don't get to stand back and say, yeah, it's mine, I'm taking it for the good. No, husbands, you give yourself away to the good where you sacrifice yourself. And this both of you are to give yourself away. Listen, how many marriage problems come because we're takers and not givers? When you begin to look at the issues in your marriage, how many of them come because you are taking and not giving yourself away to your spouse? Same thing applies in that relationship between children and parents. Are you a giver or are you a taker? And now we're going to move to this whole idea of slaves and masters. And let me just say this. I know sometimes when we think about this idea that the Christian life is characterized by giving ourselves away to others and not being a taker. I know some of us are sitting here thinking, you know, the world would say that's crazy. I mean, if I, if I give myself away to someone else, what happens if I get taken advantage of? That's probably going to happen. There's probably going to be times that you give yourself away and you'll be taken advantage of. But you won't experience true love until you learn to give yourself away. You won't experience the fullness of what God has designed for you until you stop being a taker and begin to be a giver. To where you can give yourself away. So now we're going to look at this relationship between the servant and the master. And I think the easiest application for us is what does this look like in our workplace? What does this look like as a relationship between the employer and the employee? Listen, this is a valuable lesson. I begin thinking about some of our young people that are just entering the workforce. Man, this is a great conversation for you to begin to learn, to understand. What does God expect for you in the workplace? But I also began to think through and I'm like, man, isn't this a valuable lesson for any of us at work? right? Because does anybody have a perfect workplace? Everything's wonderful. Jake, Jake, his hand, I expected it to go up and he didn't go up. The reality is when you work at a place, man, sometimes frustration sets in. Sometimes you're like, man, I don't know why they do the things this way. It doesn't make sense. I've got great ideas on how things could be run better, right? Right? And maybe you begin to, to, to look at those people in leadership and say, man, they're out of touch with reality. My boss, he's a jerk, right, Jake? And this is what happens. You begin to have these feelings. If you're an employee, this is what God expects of employees. Obedience. That's what he said, chapter 3, verse 22. He says, bondservants. Or employees, or anybody under authority, obey in everything. You notice there's no, no wiggle room right here? There's no wiggle room to say, well, I have to obey in some things, the things I like. No, he says obey in everything. Now, of course, of course, uh, uh, yes, if, if, if you're asked to do something that is contrary to God, we obey God and not man. Yes, that's true. There is that little bit of, of an escape clause but otherwise, employees, what God expects of us is that we would obey. 
that we don't get to choose what we obey and what we don't. We, get to choose, we don't get to choose what's right and what's not right. We don't get to choose what is fair. We are committed to obey. And again, uh, same thing we said last week. I think there's a little bit of room where if you disagree with your boss, I think there's room for you to bring that issue up. You don't like the way something's done. I think it's right for you to be able to say, hey, can you explain this to me? I don't understand. Maybe there's a better way to do it. But at that point, as a Christian employee, man, you leave it in their hands and you let it go. You don't bring it up 17 other times. Now, again, maybe this is because Paul knows my nature and maybe knows some of our nature. Where if I'm told to obey, sometimes I can have a bad attitude doing it. Sometimes I can be grumpy about it. And so Paul, he like, it's like he speaks right to me. And he says, hey, listen, when you obey, obey in everything, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, not just when people are watching, where you kind of are two-faced, where when the boss is there, oh, yeah, I'm a great employee. He's wonderful. I'm working hard. And as soon as the boss walks out, I'm going to go sit and play on my phone. I'm going to go sit and badmouth the boss. How many of you know, how many guys know that guy? How many of you are that guy? Right? We probably don't want to admit it. How many of us actually are that guy? This is where I remember growing up. I remember my mom, she'd go to work during the summer, and she'd tell me and, me and my siblings, here's all the chores you have to do today. Right? And how many of you were the kid that did your chores right away and did them really good? And how many of you looked at the clock and said, mom's home in 10 minutes. Hurry! Get it done! Because mom's coming. Don't be, Paul's saying don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. He says, uh, verse 22, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And here's the key, verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. As an employee, we are to work hard. We work hard to please God and not to please men. That our responsibility is that we work hard for God and not just for the people around us. And you ever notice this? I don't think this just applies to our workplace. I think this probably applies to being like a lifestyle thing. That whatever you do, whether in word and deed, we do it to please the Lord. That we, the way that we work is a, is a testimony to our faith in God as to whether we actually are, are pursuing a relationship with Him. So whether we are working or doing chores at home, whatever it is, here's what Paul says here. He says, work hard. Work hard and work to please God and not just to please men. And this is why Paul said that. This is why Paul said you do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Because we are working and doing all things towards God. In fact, the audience matters, does it not? The audience matters. If I'm doing a job and I know it's for someone important, we're all going to work really hard on it, right? But if you're doing a job and it's like for the neighbor kid down the street, you're like, oh, whatever. Audience shouldn't matter. I mean, we have, if you work for a jerk, if you've got a boss who's a jerk, man, isn't it true that we can justify doing all sorts of dumb things for them? We can justify all sorts of laziness, all sorts of, of bad decisions. But Paul just said, listen, you work for the Lord, not for men. Does that change your perspective a little bit? In fact, uh, there's a cool story about this idea about how we work for God. Uh, about this is the inspiration for Mother Teresa. Now we think about Mother Teresa and all the saintly things that she did. This idea that she worked for the Lord was the reason behind all that she did. That she took this idea seriously. She read Matthew 25. 
And she began to, to believe that when she's cleaning, the, the, she's working with the lepers, the people ostracized from society, she began to believe, listen, when I'm cleaning their sores out, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this for Him. When I'm working with the undesirables for Christ, listen, I'm actually doing that for God. Can you imagine like, like how in the most tedious of tasks that you have, the most obnoxious things, thankless jobs that you are put, that are put in front of you? Can you imagine how much greater value it brings if we actually thought, man, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this to the Lord. Think about a plumber. I mean, a plumber, look around and look at what you do, and you're like, man, I've got a really crappy job. But man, like, if you know who you're working for, listen, you, you display the love of God. You display Christ through having that toilet working and working good. You see how that, because it's who you are working for. Listen, you may not be like Mother Teresa. You may not be clean, cleansing the wounds of lepers. But if you had this idea I was working for God, how would that change how you work? How much value would that give to the seemingly uh, menial tasks that are given to you? Pushing mounds and mounds of paper across your desk. Repetitive physical labor. I mean, think about this. I think about this. Just think about household chores. Like if you realize, man, I'm working for God, how many of us would go and instead of putting one more thing in the garbage can and trying to balance it so it stays, how many of us would say, if I'm working for the Lord, man, I'm going to take that garbage out and change the sack. Again, this idea, you are working for the Lord. It would change your perspective. You'd take the extra step. No longer would be good enough would be good enough. You'd be saying, I'm going to do my best. And, and Paul includes an incentive, verse 24. He says, I want you to obey in everything, knowing that the Lord will, uh, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're, you are serving Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Now, again, naturally, this is where we begin to work, and we're, we want a little bit of recognition, right? You work, you want a paycheck. You work, you want a little affirmation, a little bit of attaboy. I mean, that's the way it works. And if you're... Uh, i got to look at my notes here. I don't know what I said here. <laughs> Listen, if you are faithful in your work, hey, there's going to be times that you're not going to get the recognition that you feel like you deserve. You're, there's going to be times where we have, we feel abused, we feel used, and we don't feel valued. We feel all these different things. And what Paul is saying is his, there's no partiality. If you are working your best, if you are working for the Lord, God doesn't have any favorites, he will reward you. If you are faithful, he will take care of you. And oftentimes, just truthfully, like oftentimes it happens out in this life where if we would just do what the Bible says to do, if we would work hard for, for the Lord and not for men, oftentimes you see this work out in this life. And I'm not talking about some prosperity gospel thing, but I'm saying when you put this principle to work and you work hard and you work for God and you're good to the people around you, chances are, you're going to be taken care of. Chances are you're going to be given good opportunities. Chances are doors are going to open up to you. And that's what happens. And Paul says, listen, if it doesn't happen in this life, it will happen in the next. That there is an, an eternal inheritance that, that is waiting for you. And I begin to think through, you know, you know what I desperately want to hear? And this is where I have this need for affirmation. I have this need for approval. 
You know what I want to hear? The moment that I meet God, I'm waiting for him to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. And how much of that would just be reward enough, incentive enough for us to work hard to hear him say, well done, child, well done. On the flip side, man, if you're lazy, if you're taking advantage of the situation, I think the idea is it's going to be paid back to you. Again, this is where it might happen in this life, and it really stinks when it does. You can only fake it for so long. And then, chapter 4, we're going to flip, and, and Paul addresses the bosses. Paul addresses the, the, the leadership. If you are leadership, listen, Paul is giving you instruction on how you are to lead in your business, in your organization, in your school, in your home, wherever it is. Again, let me just say this. Uh, leadership, we've talked about this, in the same way that, that parents cultivate obedience in their children with how they lead their kids, in the same way that husbands cultivate that relationship with their spouse by how they love and how they serve them. Listen, if you're a leader, how you treat your employees cultivates the response you get. You want to have employees that work hard for you, that honor you, that, 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 that work hard for the business, the greater weight falls on you and how you cultivate that and the people around you. So here's, here's what Paul says. Paul says, treat your bond servants, treat your, those people under your direction, your employees, your subordinates, your, your volunteers, your children, treat them justly and fairly. Again, this is where we have to understand if you are in a leadership position and you are a Christian, your bottom line is not your profit margin. If you are in leadership and you're a Christian, your bottom line is not just your sales performance. Your bottom line is not how many kids we get to graduate. Your bottom line is how you steward what God has entrusted to you. And what's the greatest thing that God has, has given us? He's given us people. He's given us employees. And your bottom line is not just how profitable you are. Your bottom line is how you steward the, the, the blessings that God has given you. The people that God has given you. That if you are in leadership, that you are to be just and fair and gracious and generous to those around you. Because it shows your Christian character. That you want to have an influence in the workplace for Christ is not just by putting a Bible verse on your desk. That you want to influence your workplace for Christ is not by getting the Jesus sticker and slapping it on the back of your car. No, your faith is shown in your character. Your faith is shown in how you lead and how you love those people that are under your care. Listen, at your workplace, are you known as being greedy? As being overbearing? As being hard-hearted? What is your bottom line to the people around you? Because your faith is shown through the same things, through compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness. And if you are exhibiting these characteristics, Paul says you will be just and fair with your employees. And then Paul includes this other little phrase to the employers. He says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Listen, isn't it easy for us to forget that? Like when we're put in a little position of leadership, isn't it easy for us to forget? We think, well, I'm on top of the org chart, right? 
Like, I'm, I'm top dog. I got the parking spot with my name on it. Like, like I'm the manager. I, I, I'm the important person. And Paul says, no, ultimately, you aren't on top of the org chart. That just like your employees, you ultimately, you work for God. That your business is actually his business. And this means if we understand we still have a master up in heaven, that we will be held accountable for how you manage your business and how you manage your employees. That you will be held accountable by God. God is your auditor. Nothing's going to get by him. He's watching how you treat your employees, whether you are fair or just, or whether you're all about the bottom line, about making another buck. Practically, let me tell you what this looks like. When we, uh, this past year, the church got to go, this past summer, we got to go on a mission trip to, to, to Mexico. And we're in the San Quentin Valley, and the San Quentin Valley is this beautiful valley. Uh, they produce the largest amount of tomatoes in the world. Okay? It's just it's crazy. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. And, and we drive by these vegetable farms, um, and, and, and we look at all these farms, and, and the, the, uh, the missionary that was down there with us was like, this is all owned by the one family, owned by the Rodriguez family. I think that was their last name. Okay? They own, like, like, you're looking all through the San Quentin Valley, like there's all this land, all these businesses, all these things, all owned by this one family. Because in the early 1900s, this family figured out, hey, uh, we can move from being ranchers to being farmers. And they became just incredibly successful. Own a ton of, uh, a ton of this valley. And so we're driving down this road, and the, all of a sudden there's this, this new farm right next to this big fancy farm. Okay? This new farm. And there's a, there's a sign outside the farm. And it has the, the, the farm's values. And this farm was owned by a Christian man. And the values that he put on his sign, he wanted everybody to know this is what we are about. It said honesty, integrity, and family. That, that this man who wasn't as successful, who didn't have as much land, didn't have as much farm, didn't have as much business, this is what he wanted to be known by. And this Christian man is known as a man who pays the highest wage for a farm worker all throughout that, that 80-mile San Quentin Valley. That this was the destination. That if you could work for this guy, man, you were in this, that, that was a spot to be. Not working for the family that owns everything. The family that has all the money. No, you wanted to work for the Christian man that said, this is what I am going to run my business by. Listen, here's how we look at this. Whether we are an employee, whether we are an employer, we are called to give ourselves away. We are called to, to, to give the best of what we have to those around us and not just be takers. Not just be say, I'm going to punch in, I'm going to put my time in, I'm going to take what I can get out of this, and I'm going to go and go continue to, to serve myself. No, we are to be givers. And when we learn to give, we experience the fullness of all that God has promised for us. We experience the fullness of what God ha has come to give us. I think we experience what, what, what Jesus says in Luke, that we have life, we might have it abundantly.